Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Mills and welcome back to my channel. Today we're going to be covering another case for my Curious Case series. But before we delve into this case, I'd just like to say thank you to Now TV for teaming up with me to bring you this video. You all know that I have worked with Now TV in the past and I am beyond excited to be working with them again today to bring you this case. Now TV has just launched their brand new Sky channel dedicated to true crime documentaries and content called Sky Crime. Sky Crime is the home of the best true crime documentaries you can watch, all of them being hand curated from top-notch documentary makers. Now TV has a range of box sets, movies, sports, kids entertainment, TV shows and more. You can pick from different passes so you can be sure you're watching the content that you want to watch and with the entertainment pass that will give you access to the Sky Crime channel for just £8.99 a month. Now TV has worked with me today to celebrate the launch of the documentary The Cheshire Murders. The people over at Now TV let me see the documentary in advance and let me tell you now that it is insane, it's gripping, it's so detailed and it's a really, really interesting watch. I super advise that you go watch that documentary covering this case after you finish watching my video on it. You can find a link to Now TV at the top of my description. I just like to point out this video has not been made to cause disrespect, anything like that. It's just been made to spread awareness about this case by compiling information from various different public sources on the internet. Any theories discussed in this video are just that theories. They are not facts and they shouldn't be taken as such. And any theories and opinions expressed in this video do not represent the views of myself, Now TV, law enforcement, or anybody else involved in this case. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. Sunday the 22nd of July 2007, 48 year old mother of two Jennifer Hawkey Petit left her husband Bill Petit asleep on the sofa and walked upstairs with her two daughters Haley, who was 17 and Michaela who was 11 to go to bed. Michaela actually joined her mother in bed while Haley went to her room to go to sleep. Not long after all the girls had gone up to go to bed, Bill Petit actually awoke on the sofa and decided that instead of going upstairs and potentially waking up his wife and his daughter, he would stay asleep on the sofa downstairs. The family lived in a really nice home in Cheshire, Connecticut, United States. Bill and Jennifer had met in 1985 when Bill was studying as a medical student at the same hospital where Jennifer worked as a nurse. When Bill, whose full name was William Petit Jr., had set eyes on Jennifer, he knew from the offset that he was in love with her and he really wanted to try and impress her. So he decided that he would try to impress her using his expert knowledge in the medical field, despite the fact that he was just a third year medical student. He showed Jennifer how to take a blood pressure reading from a patient with full confidence, hoping to impress Jennifer with his expert know-how and technique. 
But Jennifer, after Bill had shown her how to take a blood pressure reading, then showed Bill the correct way of taking a blood pressure reading from a patient because Bill had done it completely wrong. Jennifer was actually a pediatric nurse and Bill knew from the outset that she was far smarter than he was. The pair began dating and it wasn't long until they got married. Shortly after getting married, the young couple welcomed their first child into the world in October of 1989, Haley. Six years later, the couple welcomed their second child, Michaela, into their family in November of 1995. The family had a fairly regular and average life with nothing that notable occurring. That was until 1998 when Haley was just nine years old when Jennifer was actually diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. In a true demonstration of Haley's determined, smart, and generous character, she decided that at the age of nine, she would start to raise money for her mother and do whatever she could to help. Haley actually did a sponsored walk every year for seven years to raise money for charities around MS and she actually raised in total 55,000 US dollars for these charities. Haley had spent her former years hanging out with her dad at the hospital and it quickly became clear that Haley wanted to follow in her father's footsteps and pursue a medical career. She applied and got accepted to Dartmouth University to study medicine and was due to start in September of 2006. Haley's younger sister, Michaela, was just as smart and gentle, often spending a lot of time cooking and gardening with the family. 2007 seemed like a year of great accomplishments and achievements within the Petit family, with Haley being accepted to her dream university to study what she wanted to study. However, in the early hours of Monday, the 23rd of July, 2007, their entire world would come crashing down all around them. Bill was awoken from his sleep on the sofa to the sound of two strangers breaking into his home. It happened so quickly that Bill was unable to properly react to what was going on. The two strangers, both men who were dressed in dark clothing and armed with a gun and a baseball bat, proceeded to hit Bill repeatedly on the head, causing impact wounds to his skull. This obviously caused Bill to scream in panic, but the men reassured him that he shouldn't be panicking, they just wanted money. According to some sources, the men asked Bill where the safe was in their house, to which Bill informed them that there was no safe. Following that, Bill was bound with rope and left bleeding out on the sofa. He had sustained serious lacerations to his head. Leaving Bill on the sofa, the two men worked their way upstairs where they found Jennifer and the 11-year-old Michaela sleeping in the same bed. We're unable to concretely say what actually happened upstairs, but what we do know is the two men had tied up all the girls girls, Jennifer, McKaylee, who was 11, and Haley, who was 17, to their beds before placing a pillowcase over their heads. The men reiterated to the girls that they didn't want to hurt them and they were only in the house doing this so that they could get some money before the two men went back downstairs again. They then forced Bill at gunpoint down into the basement and tied him up to a support column. Bill was bleeding severely and due to this, he was passing in and 
and out of consciousness. Leaving Bill to bleed out in the basement, the two men then went back upstairs and ransacked the entire house looking for anything of any value, looking for any cash. They didn't actually believe Bill that there was no safe in the house, so they were also looking for that safe. However, Bill had told them the truth. There was no safe in the house and there was no cash. And when the two men finally realized that, they began to panic. That was when one of the men discovered bank statements that showed that the family had about 30,000 US dollars in savings. Although according to some sources, this 30,000 US dollars was separate credit lines. Um, I couldn't quite find a definite answer on whether it was savings or credit lines, but regardless, they had access to 30,000 US dollars. The two men then devised a plan. One of the men would take Jennifer to the bank when it opened in the morning and force her to withdraw $15,000 from her accounts. The bank opened at 9 a.m. that Monday morning, which meant by the time that the bank opened, the ordeal had been going on for six hours with Bill still in the basement. Before they set off to the bank though, one of the men took two jerry cans that they found in the house to a local petrol station, filled them up with petrol and brought it back to the house and then they set off towards the bank. Once they arrived at the bank, Jennifer entered and went up to one of the teller counters. She passed a note to the teller who then went and gave the note to the bank manager. The note told the people working at the bank that Jennifer and her family were being held hostage. The bank manager immediately phoned 911 at 9.21 a.m. I couldn't actually determine whether the teller actually withdrew $15,000 from Jennifer's accounts or not, and whether it was given to her or not, but it wasn't long until Jennifer left the bank. The bank manager who was on the phone to 911 was giving real-time updates to the authorities as to what was going on and where Jennifer was. The bank manager had actually hidden in a dark office room with the lights off, which had a window that looked out into the car park so she could see what car Jennifer was getting into. I believe then the bank manager then gave the police the address of Jennifer and her home. And that was so the police could then go to Jennifer's house and save the family. This bank manager was also able to describe to 911 what the man who was in the vehicle with Jennifer was wearing, although it was dark clothing. It's important to note that Jennifer had indicated to the people working at the bank that the men that were holding her host hostage and holding her family hostage only wanted money and nothing else. Sadly, Jennifer couldn't be further from the truth. Within the next hour, Jennifer's home would be engulfed in flames and Jennifer, Michaela and Haley would have all sadly passed away. As per always, I won't be delving into the particulars of what occurred and the the crimes that were committed. Um, I feel the details are way too graphic to discuss. I will, however, tell you the official cause of death for Jennifer and her two daughters. Please skip forward in this video by about 10 seconds if you don't want to hear how they died. Jennifer had been strangled to death with both her daughters succumbing to smoke inhalation from a fire that had been started downstairs in the house. Bill, however, had somehow and miraculously managed to regain consciousness and enough strength, I believe due to adrenaline, to free himself from the restraints in the basement. Fortunately, the basement had a access door which led to the outside through which Bill escaped. His neighbor actually saw him emerge from the hatches which led down to the basement, 
but his neighbor didn't recognize him due to the severity of the injuries that Bill had sustained, so the neighbor phoned 911. Within a matter of seconds, literally maybe 30 seconds, a armed police officer arrived and stood over Bill holding a rifle. Bill had fallen to the ground. Bill then tried to tell this police officer that his wife and two daughters were still inside the house, but by this point it was too late. It's important to note that Bill would later go on to say that when he emerged from the basement, he saw men and people in the tree line surrounding the house, which we'd then later go on to find out were the police building a perimeter around the property. Why these police officers didn't immediately enter the house when they got to the scene would be an action that would come under a lot of scrutiny later on in this case. The two men who were responsible for what happened to the Petit family tried to escape out the front door, getting into the Petit family car. Uh, however, as they drove off the driveway, they crashed into a police blockage and a police barrier, and they were promptly arrested. Sadly, by the time the firefighters arrived on the scene, there was little they could do to recover the remains of the girls still inside. But who were these two men? Why did they do this, and why did they choose the Petit family? To answer this, we have to go back to the day before the murders, Sunday the 22nd of July 2007. That Sunday afternoon, Jennifer and Michaela had gone to the local grocery store to pick up some ingredients for the meal that the 11-year-old Michaela had planned to cook for the family that evening. Jennifer and Michaela unknowingly and unfortunately crossed paths with 26-year-old Joshua Komischewski, who was also at the grocery store. Joshua was immediately interested in the pair and actually discreetly followed them home after they had left the store. Now Joshua was born on the 10th of August 1980 and was actually adopted by a reputable family. He was actually an extremely smart person, however he was also troubled, having gone in and out of jail numerous times during his adulthood on burglary charges. He had actually recently gotten out of jail and had vowed to change his life for the better and he wanted to pursue a career aspiration of becoming an architect. In 2002, Joshua actually had a daughter with his girlfriend at the time. However, just a few months before the tragedy that struck the Petit family, Joshua actually gained full custody of his daughter just in the early months of 2007. And that was due to his now ex-girlfriend having to go to rehab for addiction-related issues. Despite Joshua having full custody of his daughter, it was Joshua's parents that actually looked after to her. Early in 2007, Joshua also began dating an 18-year-old girl, and this was despite the fact that he was 26 years old. The relationship became very serious very quickly, and the pair were already considering marriage after just knowing each other and dating for a few months. But the girl's father didn't approve of the relationship at all and actually didn't approve of Joshua due to him being a, in his view, a career criminal. And the girl's father also accused Joshua of being a because he seems only interested in his daughter because she looks younger than her age. It was the year prior in the year 2006 that Joshua had actually shared a room in a halfway house with a man called Stephen Hayes. And this man, Stephen, would go on to become Joshua's accomplice in the Cheshire murders. Stephen was 44 years old at the time of the murders and according to his brothers who were interviewed as part of the Cheshire murders documentary, he was manipulated 
manipulative and violent from a young age. He was extremely controlling and never took responsibility for any of his mistakes. Stephen was described by his family as cunning and calculating. In 1992, Stephen actually had a daughter with his now ex-wife. Interestingly, Stephen's daughter described her father as being very loving and never being violent or manipulative or toxic towards her at all. After the pair met Stephen and Joshua in the halfway house, they quickly became the closest of friends. Stephen had a history of breaking into cars and stealing valuables from inside them, and Joshua had an extensive history of breaking into houses in the middle of the night, on one occasion even breaking into a police deputy's house. The pair kept in constant contact after leaving the halfway house through the use of text messaging and by meeting up. Two days before the murders, on the 21st of July 2007, Joshua decided that he wanted to show Stephen just how easy it is to break into a house. So they went to a random house, Joshua broke into it while Stephen stayed outside watching. According to the blog talkmurderwithme.com, when Stephen saw just how easy it would be to make money by breaking into people's houses, he was sold. At 7.45pm the next day, after Joshua had followed Jennifer and her daughter Michaela back to their house, Joshua and Stephen exchanged a series of text messages. Stephen texts Joshua saying, I'm chomping at the bit to get started, need a margarita soon. However, Joshua didn't actually respond to the text message, so about an hour later, Stephen sent him another text message. And this read, we still on? Joshua replied saying, yes. Stephen texted him back asking, soon? To which Joshua responded, I'm putting the kid to bed, hold your horses. Stephen shot back a text that read, Dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. After which, the pair met up and the events that took place within the next 24 hours would go down as one of the most horrific crimes in Connecticut state history. Joshua and Stephen would go on to say in their trials that they had only intended to steal money and that the entire situation had escalated. They never intended to hurt anyone. And Joshua's reasoning for choosing Jennifer and her family was because Jennifer looked rich and she had a nice car. The defense in this case initially tried for a plea deal which would see both men serving life imprisonments without the possibility of parole so long as they pled guilty on all charges. However, the prosecution categorically rejected this plea deal. The prosecution wanted to seek the death penalty for both men. And under Connecticut state law, this would mean that both men would have to have separate trials by jury and the jury would have to come to a verdict to say that they should receive the death penalty. Stephen Hayes' trial began on the 18th of October 2010, with Joshua's trial beginning on the 13th of October 2011. The jury in both trials came to the verdict that the men should both be executed and receive the death penalty. However, Connecticut actually abolished the death penalty in 2015, meaning that both the men's sentences were reduced to a life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. As a result of this, Joshua's defense team actually tried to appeal his sentencing and try to go for a new trial under the under the under the pretense that Joshua was painted as the mastermind behind this whole crime when he wasn't the mastermind however this was dismissed by the courts it's important to note that Stephen Hayes never once attempted to appeal his conviction he knew and confessed that he was guilty and he didn't want to put the family through all the pain and torments that 
that a second trial would have. They'd already gone through enough. How these two career criminals had not been flagged prior to the murders taking place is something that the documentary on Now TV, The Cheshire Murders, explores in great detail. The documentary also explores how the police's response hindered the rescue of the girls, with a lot of people actually believing that the girls would all still be alive today if the police had acted differently. It's important to note that the police had arrived on scene about 30 minutes prior to Bill emerging from the basement, and they had spent that 30 minutes just securing the perimeter around the house. Within that half an hour, all three of the Petit women had passed away. Lives that some people say could have been saved if the police had just entered the property and rescued them. Bear in mind the fire hadn't been started until much later on in that half an hour. The documentary, The Cheshire Murders, explores this case in great detail. It's about two hours long and I super, super recommend it. Sky Crime is available on Now TV with the entertainment pass for £8.99 a month. Just click the link at the top of my description to find out more. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case series. If you want to see more true crime content just like this, then don't forget to subscribe and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time that I post. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. Oh,